Father in heaven, thank you so much for this time that we have once again to study the book of Daniel. And Lord, as we come to study this book, help us to learn the lessons that we've already studied and apply to our lives that we may be humble as we come to listen to this truth. And most of all, Father, I pray that you'd prepare us for the time that we have to give a reason for the faith that we have in thee. So help us to pay close attention, open our ears and our minds, and give us wisdom and understanding as I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Daniel chapter 5. Now, to come to study the book of Daniel chapter, uh, the chapter of Daniel chapter 5, you really need to understand a lot of history and what took place during this time, this chapter, okay? So as we go through it, I'm going to fill you in on the history, but you really need to, you see, I've mentioned this at the beginning, but it, it needs to be mentioned again, is that history repeats itself. We really need to understand history. Why? Because when you look at history, really, it's an outline of the future as well and how events are going to take place. And as we look at this, you know, some people look at Daniel chapter 5 and it's just a story, okay, the fall of Babylon. Um, what is this related to? But actually, there's a lot of prophetic meaning behind this chapter, a lot. It's really rich with a lot of things that will take place in the last days. And so as we go through this, let's keep in mind prophecy or history that's going to be repeated, okay? Daniel chapter 5 and verse 1. Verse 1, the Bible says, Belshazzar the king made a great feast to a thousand of his lords and drank wine before the thousand. Now Belshazzar the king, keep this in mind, the ruler of the state, all right? He, Nebuchadnezzar has already passed off the scene and Belshazzar comes on. Now we're going to look at what relation he is to Nebuchadnezzar in a moment. But note here that Belshazzar the king is the ruler of the state. He's state, political entity. Now the background of Babylon, let's just look at this real quickly. If we go to Jeremiah 51, there's one thing that I want to point out here at this point in time, right at the beginning, to help us understand a bit about Babylon. Jeremiah chapter 51, and we're looking at verses 12 to 13. Jeremiah 51, verses 12 to 13. Verse 12, set up the standard upon the walls of Babylon, make the watch strong, set up the watchmen, prepare the ambushes, for the Lord hath both devised and done that which he spake against the inhabitants of Babylon. O thou that dwellest upon what? Many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end is come, and the measure of thy covetousness. So one thing that I want you to note here in Jeremiah 51 is that Babylon sits on many waters, literally. It had the what? River running through it. The river Euphrates. Okay? So this river was pretty much the support of Babylon. This is the thing that gave Babylon its life. This was the river that allowed it to withstand sieges for many years. Why? Because they were able to grow, the, grow, grow their own crops within the city walls. They were self-sufficient. So Babylon was supported by a river or a body of water. Now... Why did Belshazzar, the king, make a great feast? What was happening? What was happening during this time, historically? The Medes and the Persians were outside the city walls. And basically, Belshazzar was making a boastful claim that the Persian armies could not, uh, the Medo-Persian armies could not overthrow Babylon. So that's the reason why they made this feast. 
boastful claim to say Medo-Persia could not conquer them. And where were the Medes and the Persians from? Geographically, they're from the east. You look this in history, you look this in geography of the historical maps, you'll find that Medo-Persian Empire, they were coming from the east. And the kings of the Medes and the Persians, you see they were two separate kingdoms. The kings of the Medes and the Persians were Darius and Cyrus. They were the kings of the Medo-Persian Empire. Therefore, they were known as the kings of the east. And Cyrus was a nephew of Darius, or people might call him Darius. So Cyrus was the nephew of Darius, and these two kings were the kings of Medo-Persia and the Medes and the Persians. And they were known as the kings of the east. Keep that in mind. Now, Babylon basically here was defying the kings of the east. Now, this becomes important as we study prophecy, but keep that in mind as we move on. Isaiah chapter 47, I want you to look at this, what Babylon is saying in their hearts against the Medes and the Persians. Isaiah chapter 47. And we're looking at verses 7 and 8. This is what Babylon was saying. It's a boastful claim, and this is why they were having this great feast. Isaiah 47, starting with verse 7. And thou said, I shall be a lady forever, so that thou didst not lay these things to thy heart, neither didst, thou rem- neither didst remember the latter end of it. So what is Babylon saying? I shall be what? A lady forever. So they're saying that they're going to establish, their kingdom is going to last eternally. A lady forever. But then it says in verse 8, Therefore hear now this, thou that art given to pleasures, that dwellest carefully, that saith in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. I shall sit not as a widow, neither shall I know the loss of children. So what is Babylon boastfully saying here? That their kingdom is going to last forever? And it says here, you see, I want you to notice this in verse 8. You say, thou that sayest in thine heart what? I am. I am is a characteristic of God. So Babylon is taking on the characteristics of God, or should I say they're the Antichrist. Now you're going to see this more and more unfolding prophetically. But this is what's been said of Babylon. You say in your heart, what? I am. You're taking on the characteristics of God, the characteristics of deity, and you're saying that you're going to last forever. And this is the reason why they were making this feast. But of course, historically, we know that the river Euphrates was dried up and the way was prepared for the kings of the east that they may come in. And that was how Babylon was conquered. But notice Ezra 6.14 records the three kings, of course, two, two of them were there presently. Artaxerxes came later. But if you go to Ezra 6.14, you'll see the three kings that were responsible, at least two of them, that were responsible for the overthrow of Babylon. But at the same time, these three kings were the ones that gave the three decrees to send the children of Israel back to lay the foundation of Jerusalem. So these three kings or the kings that came and destroyed Babylon were the same kings that gave the decree to free the Israelites to go back to the promised land, to lay the foundation. This is historical. All this is history. This is what actually happened after the fall of Babylon. 
keep this in mind as we're going through, okay? And we're going to bring all this back into application to how it relates to us in the last days. Now let's go back to Daniel chapter 5 and verse 2. Moving on, we have a lot to get through. So let's look at verse 2 now. Belshazzar, whilst he tasted the wine, commanded to bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem, that the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines might drink therein. Then they brought the golden vessels that were taken out of the temple of the house of God, which was at Jerusalem, and the king and his princes, his wives and his concubines drank therein. Now in verse 2 it says, Nebuchadnezzar his what? His father. Now Nebuchadnezzar actually was not the father, biological father, of Belshazzar. He was actually the grandfather. Now, how do we rectify this understanding of the use of father there? Well, go to, with me to 1 Kings chapter 2. The Bible is actually replete with calling grandfathers and great-grandfathers fathers. 1 Kings chapter 2 is just one example and we're going to move on. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. 1 Kings chapter 2 and verse 10. So David slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. So we know that David did not have many fathers per se, but that used a figurative expression of that is his generation that went before him. Father, great-grandfather, great-great, whatever it may be. But even we can find this in Testimonies to Ministers, TM, page 436. And I'll read this for you. TM page 436 confirms it and of course history confirms it that Nebuchadnezzar was the grandfather of Belshazzar TM page 436 Belshazzar awed by this representation of God's power showing that they had a witness though they knew it not had had great opportunities of knowing the works of the living God and his power and of doing his will he speaking of Belshazzar had been privileged with much light his grandfather Nebuchadnezzar had been warned of his danger in forgetting God and glorifying himself. So Belshazzar had this knowledge. It says here further on, Belshazzar had a knowledge of his banishment from the society of men and his association with the beasts of the field and these facts which ought to have been a lesson to him, he disregarded as if they had never occurred and went on repeating the sins of his grandfather. So Belshazzar, you got to notice that while he set up this feast, while he brings out the holy cup or holy things, vessels of the temple, he realizes and he has in mind the past history of his grandfather and what God did with him. So basically, Nebuchadnezzar's conversion story had been held before him. He knew about this. But that was his grandfather. Now, I want you to notice back in verse 2, it says, Belshazzar, while he tasted the wine, he did what? He commanded, he made a law. To what? To bring the golden and silver vessels which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken out of the temple which was in Jerusalem. What were these gold and silver vessels? They were the holy sacred relics or vessels of God used for worship. They were the sanctuary objects. Now I want to take here a moment to just look at the difference between ancient Babylon and spiritual Babylon just with the characteristics that we got so far, okay? But I just want you to note that the holy vessels were brought out and what was put in them? 
wine. Verse 3 records that, that they brought the vessels out and they drank wine in them. Now, I want you to just pause here for a second. We're going to look at some characteristics between ancient Babylon and the spiritual Babylon that we're going to be facing in the future. Ancient Babylon is a city. Spiritual Babylon, we find in Revelation 14, 8. Revelation chapter 14, verse 8, and also chapter 18, verses 1 through 4, is also a city. Revelation 14, 8, and also Revelation 18, verses 1 through 4. Spiritual Babylon is also a city. Ancient Babylon is supported by water, which we just read. We've got the great river Euphrates running right through it. And spiritual Babylon is also supported by water. Revelation 17, 1. That's Revelation 17, 1. And Revelation 16, 12. Spiritual Babylon is also supported by water. Revelation 17, 1 and Revelation 16, 12. Now, Belshazzar is the king, head of the state, and he celebrates and makes a feast. In the same way, Revelation, uh, spiritual Babylon also makes a feast of kings as well. We find that in Revelation 18, verses 5 through 7. And these texts I'm going to read because not many people are familiar with them. Revelation 18, verses 5 through 7. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled to her, double. Verse 7. How much she had lived gloriously, glorious, gro- how much she had glorified herself and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her, for she saith in her heart, I sit a queen and am no what? Widow. You see that? That I sit a queen and no window and shall see no sorrow. Remember, we read that earlier. Quoted from the Old Testament. So this is directly applying to spiritual Babylon. So that's another characteristic that she sits as a queen, head of the state. One more, ancient Babylon is drunk with wine. We see this in chapter 5. And spiritual Babylon is also drunk with wine. Revelation chapter 17 and verse 2. Now, who are they drunk with wine with? Thousands of his lords, kings. And 17.2 of Revelation also tells us that spiritual Babylon is drunk with wine, and who's involved? The kings of the earth. So we have many parallels between ancient Babylon and what we're seeing here in chapter 5 and spiritual Babylon in the future. We're seeing history that is going to repeat itself. Now, in verse 3, it says, they mixed wine with what? The holy vessels of God that are brought out from the sanctuary. Now, what does wine represent? False doctrines. Now, how do we know that? How do we know that wine represents false doctrines? Let's go to Isaiah chapter 29. I'm going to show you this and your eyes will probably open more to the understanding that it goes beyond just false doctrines. Let's look at this, okay? Isaiah chapter 29. What does wine represent? Isaiah chapter 29 and we're starting with verse 9. And remember, what did they mix the wine with or what did they drink out of? Holy vessels of God. Keep this in mind as we read this, okay? Isaiah 29, starting in verse 9. Stay yourselves and wonder, cry ye out, cry, 
cry. They are drunk and cry. They are drunken, but not with wine. So they're drunken, but not with what? Wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. So what are they drunken with? What are they staggering as a result of? Verse 10, For the Lord hath poured out upon you the spirit of deep sleep, and hath closed your eyes, the prophets and your rulers, the seers, hath he covered. And the vision of all is become unto you as the words of a book that is sealed. Which book was sealed? Book of Daniel. So the prophets cannot understand, they have no eyes, the seers have gone, that is sealed, which men deliver to one that is learned, saying, read this, I pray thee, and he saith, I cannot, for it is sealed. So people cannot understand prophecy. Why? We still don't know yet, but jump now with me to verse 13 of Isaiah 29. What is the reason why they're drunken, but not drunk with wine, staggering? Why the prophets are not prophesying and they cannot understand the book that is sealed? Verse 13, Wherefore the Lord said, For as much as this people draw near me with their mouth, and with their lips do honor me, but have removed their heart far from me, and their fear toward me is taught by the what? Precept of men. So really, what does this wine represent? Precepts of men. And this is exactly what Jesus quoted in Matthew chapter 15. Let's jump over there. I want to show you this. It helps us to get a very clear view of what wine represents here. We see here that it's the precepts of men. But come with me to Matthew chapter 15. What is this wine? Matthew chapter 15, starting with verse 1. Then came Jesus, then came to Jesus scribes and Pharisees, which were of Jerusalem, saying, Why do thy disciples transgress the tradition of the elders? For they wash not their hands, but they eat bread. And so, what, what are they transgressing? The tradition of the elders. Verse 3, notice this, he answers and says, Why do ye also transgress the commandments of God by your traditions? So really, what, is it, what do we see in two lines here of? Commandments of God versus what? Traditions of man. Come with me down to verse 9. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So what are we seeing here when Jesus quotes from Isaiah 29? He, this wine, what does it represent? Traditions of men. But really, to the extent that how the traditions of men or the commandments of men are usurping the commandments of God. So wine is not just false doctrine. Is doctrine that takes a place or usurps the commandments of God. And by thus doing so, you worship God in vain. Now, that is what the wine represents. Traditions of men replacing the commandments of God. Henceforth, we're worshiping God in vain. But then, it, notice, wine is brought and is put into the holy vessels of God, which is used for worship. Now, what commandment of God is being usurped that is related to worship. Sabbath. So what we're seeing here is that men are using wine, their traditions, to take the place of God's commandments. But what commandment really? The Sabbath. So what are we seeing here that's coming in? Mixing of holy with unholy, we're seeing Sunday sacredness. Now, so let me trace this again. We see the wine here. Wine represents according to Isaiah 29, especially verse 13. We jump over to Matthew 15 to connect it. It's really how men's traditions or men's commandments are taking the place of God's commandments. But especially when you're putting the wine into the holy vessels that are used for worship, the sanctuary service, what 
tradition is being replaced by God, um, what commandment is being replaced, especially for worship by men's traditions, is the Sabbath. And what we're seeing here is Sunday sacredness. Mixing of holy with unholy. Unholy commandment of men mixed with holy commandment of God. Remember, the Sabbath day is being usurped. So what we're seeing here on top of this is that state is calling forth a law to change the Sabbath. And the only way that it can be done is to pour the wine of Babylon into sacred vessels, replacing the commandments with tradition. And this is a sign that God's forbearance has closed. Because we'll read further on, at the same hour came a bloodless hand and wrote words on the wall. So when you see in the future, mixing of holy with unholy, and you're seeing the sacred vessels being desecrated, the Sabbath commandment, remember, just keep this in mind, the close of probation is very imminent. Very imminent. So this is at that point when the Spirit of Prophecy says that the angel of mercy takes a flight never to come back again. And we're going to read that quote in a minute. But at the same time, really, wine represents all the false doctrines of Babylon. All the false doctrines of Babylon. But there are two main ones that stand out. We've already looked at one of them. That's Sunday sacredness. But the second one is immortality of the soul. These are the two main erroneous doctrines of Babylon that are going to sweep the world at the end of time. Sunday sacredness and immortality of the soul. Now let me read a quote to you from Great Controversy, page 588. Great Controversy, page 588. Through the two great errors, the immortality of the soul and Sunday sacredness, Satan will bring the people under his deceptions. While the former lays a foundation of spiritualism, the latter creates a bond of sympathy with Rome. The Protestants of the United States will be foremost in stretching their hands across the gulf to grasp the hand of spiritualism. They will reach over the abyss to clasp hands with the Roman power, and under the influence of this threefold union, this country will follow in the steps of Rome in trampling on the rights of conscience. So when you see these two great errors perpetrated, immortality of the soul and also Sunday sacredness, know that the trampling of the conscience is soon to come and close of probation close soon after that. The close of probation will come soon after that. This is what we're seeing from just Daniel chapter 5 so far. But let us continue on. Wine mixed with holy vessels of God. Verse 4, Daniel chapter 5 and verse 4. They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and of silver, of brass, of iron, of wood, and of stone. Do you know how many elements are actually mentioned here? Six. Man's number. So they're worshipping man. They're worshipping a man's number. 666. Moving on. Verse 5. In the same hour came forth fingers of a man's hand and wrote over against the candlestick upon the plaster of the wall of the king's palace. And the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. Now what does finger represent? It represents judgment lines up exactly with the theme of the book of Daniel, which is judgment, his name. But finger represents judgment. And let's look at a few examples. Exodus chapter 8. Exodus chapter 8. And verse 19. 
Exodus chapter 8 and verse 19. This is during the time when the plagues are falling in Egypt and mostly the magicians are counterfeiting the plagues that are being um, used by God, that are, that are being miraculously set forth by God, of course, but they turn the water into blood as well. But it comes to this point where they can't counterfeit it anymore. Lice throughout the whole land. They, they throw up the dust and it doesn't become lice. So if we look at verse, start with verse 18. Exodus chapter 8. And the magicians did so with their enchantments to bring forth lice, but they could not. So there were lice upon man, upon a beast. Verse 19. Then the magicians said unto Pharaoh, This is the finger of God. Finally, they say, This is the judgments of God that are being poured out. We can't counterfeit this. This is truly the judgments of God upon Egypt. Now let's look at another one. Exodus 31. Exodus 31. And verse 18. Exodus 31 and verse 18. How the law of God was written, the Ten Commandments, and he gave unto Moses when he had made an end of communing with him upon Mount Sinai, two tables of testimony, tables of stone, written with the finger of God. So the law was written with the finger of God, and we know in James and also James 2.12 and Romans 2.12, that by the law will be judged. So judgment takes place by the law. James 2.12 and Romans 2.12. That law which was written by the finger of God. James 2.12 and Romans 2.12. And of course, in John chapter 8, verse 6, we were recounting the story of how the Pharisees brought before Jesus a harlot, a prostitute caught in the act and they want they ask Jesus what he does what he should do let's go there John chapter 8 and verse 6 so they say what do we do what do you do Jesus she was caught in the very act verse 6 of John chapter 8 this they said tempting him that they might have to accuse him but Jesus stooped down with, and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. And what was he writing? Desire of Ages, page 641. D.A., Desire of Ages, page 641. What was this thing that Jesus was writing on the sand? Jesus looked, upon, looked for a moment upon the scene. The trembling victim in her shame, the hard-faced dignitaries devoid of even human pity. His spirit stainless his spirit of stainless purity shrank from the spectacle. Well, he knew for what purpose this case had been brought to him. He read the heart and knew the character and life history of everyone in his presence. These would be guardians of justice had themselves, these would be guardians of justice had themselves led their victim into sin that they might lay a snare for Jesus. Giving no sign that he had heard their question, he stooped down fixing his eyes upon the ground, began to write in the dust. Impatient at his delay and apparent indifference, the accusers drew nearer, urging the matter upon his attention. But as their eyes following those of Jesus fell upon the pavement at his feet, their countenances changed. There traced before them were the guilty secrets of their own lives. The people looked on, saw the sudden change of expression, and pressed forward to discover what it was that they were regarding with such astonishment and shame. So what was Jesus writing upon the sand? The guilty secrets of their past lives. Judgment take place right before their very eyes. 
And with that, they all left. So to a great degree, what does the finger of God represent? The judgment of God upon humanity. And so when the bloodless hand comes across in verse 5 of Daniel 5, when it's written upon the wall of the king's palace, what does it represent? Judgment of Babylon. And that is the exact theme of this chapter. The judgment of Babylon, or the finger of God. Let's move on, verse 6. Then the king's countenance was changed and his thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his loins were loosed and his knees smote one against another. The king cried aloud to to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers. And the king spake and said to the wise men of Babylon, Whosoever shall read this writing and show me the interpretation thereof shall be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about his neck and shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then came in all the king's wise men, but they could not read the writing nor make known to the king the interpretation thereof. Still had not learned. Especially when they knew about the testimony of Nebuchadnezzar, right? Who should they have brought in? Daniel. Then was King Belshazzar greatly troubled, and his countenance was changed in him, and his lords were astonished. Now I want you to take note here. At this point in time, close of probation had already happened. As soon as a finger came upon the wall, the judgment, the handwriting, close of probation had already happened. It had been too late for them to repent. Why? When did close of probation happen? What event took place for it to close? When they drank the wine out of the holy vessels. So probation closes when what? Sunday sacredness comes in. Shortly after, in that same hour. Not immediately, but within that same hour. Showing us, to the, showing us that the last day events will occur rapidly. The last day events will happen in rapid successions, one after the other. And especially... As soon as Sunday law comes in, I believe it's too late to get our lives ready. For those that don't know the message, we'll go out and we'll share it with them. But for us that know this message, it'll be too late. Because close probation happens shortly after that. Moving on, verses 10 through 13. Now the queen, by reason of the words of the king and his lords, came into the banquet house. And the queen spoke and said, O king, live forever, let not thy thoughts trouble thee, nor let thy countenance be changed. There is a man in thy kingdom whom in, in whom is the spirit of the holy gods, and in the days of thy father light and understanding and wisdom, like the wisdom of the gods was found in him, whom the king Nebuchadnezzar thy father, the king, I say, thy father, made master of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. So he knew about this. Why? Because he knew about Nebuchadnezzar, his grandfather, who had gone through so much. And that's why the queen emphasizes your father, your father. Verse 12, For as much as an excellent spirit and knowledge and understanding, interpreting of dreams and showing of hard sentences, and dissolving of doubts were found in the same Daniel, whom the king named Belteshazzar, now let Daniel be called, and he will show the interpretation. Then was Daniel brought in before the king, and the king spake and said unto Daniel, Art thou... That Daniel, which art the children of the captivity of Judah, whom the king of my father brought out of Jewry. Note, Daniel was not in the feast. He was brought in, okay? He was not participating of the feast. I have even heard of thee that the spirit of the gods is in thee, and that light and understanding and excellent wisdom is found in thee. 
And now the wise men, the astrologers, have been brought in before me, that they should read this writing and make known unto me the interpretation thereof, but they could not show the interpretation of the thing. You see, the way the world trains philosophers today, they're not wise men. If you really want to have a true education, you've got to start with an education of God. Because what the world calls wise men, now the wise men, the astrologers, they don't know anything. Your degree will not help you to understand the Bible. I'm telling you now. It will not. I don't care how many masters, doctorates you get, doesn't mean or doesn't guarantee that you'll understand the Bible. So who are the wise men at the end of time? According to chapter 5? Who is it? Hmm? Those that have wisdom from God, yes. But who are those wise men? One man, Daniel. Now, we looked at chapter 4, I, th I think, previously. What was Daniel's representation of? Those that live in the last days. Chapter 1, pardon me, we looked at that. But it's going to come clearer to us who Daniel really represents at the end of time. But really, how, should, how do we get wisdom? How do we become wise men? We must fear God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Psalms 111, verse 10. And that is what? The first angel's message. So really, the wise men will give the three angels' messages. They'll be interpreting the three angels' messages. So what really was written up there, application-wise? The three angels' messages. Why? We'll look in a minute. How do we know that the three angels' messages were written up there on the wall? Let's continue on, and we'll look at this, and we'll answer this question in a moment. Verse 16 through 18. And I have heard of thee that thou canst make interpretations and dissolve doubts. Now if thou canst read the writing and make known to me the interpretation thereof, thou shalt be clothed with scarlet and have a chain of gold about thy neck, and shalt be the third ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered and said before the king, Let thy gifts be to thyself, and give thy rewards to another. Yet I will read the writing unto the king and make known to him the interpretation. O thou king, the most high God gave Nebuchadnezzar, thy king, the father, a kingdom and majesty and glory and honor. Point number one, take note. If you find anybody ever making money out of prophecy, they've gone the wrong way. I'm sorry. But if we ought to be people like the last days or like Daniel, we should have this response. King, I don't want your gifts, but I'm going to give you the interpretation anyways. Those who interpret prophecy do not do it for the sake of worldly gain. Secondly, Nebuchadnezzar is brought up again, this time by Daniel. First by the queen, but now by Daniel. Why? Daniel once, or the king, ought to have learned from the past mistakes of his grandfather. And what was the one main past mistake that stood out above all? Pride. Daniel chapter 4. And he recounts the story, verse 19. And for the majesty that, it, that he gave him, all people, nations, and languages trembled and feared before him, whom he would he slew, and whom he would he kept alive, and whom he would he set up, and whom he would he put down. Verse 20, But when his heart was lifted up, and his mind hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne, and they took his glory from him. Verse 21, and he was driven from the sons of men, and his heart was made like the beasts, and his dwelling was with the wild asses. They fed him with grass like oxen, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven, till he knew that the Most High God ruled in the kingdom of men, and that he appointed over it whomsoever he will. So Daniel recounts the whole conversion story of Nebuchadnezzar. 
And what did he really point out at the end? The characteristic of God. He gives a kingdom to whomsoever he will. And that's what is about to happen in chapter 5. Verse 22 and 23. And thou his son, O Belshazzar, has not humbled thine heart, though thou knewest all this. There you go. He knew it all. But has lifted up thyself against the Lord of heaven, and they have brought the vessels of his house before thee. And thou and thy lords, thy wives and thy concubines, have drunk wine in them, and thou hast praised the gods of silver and gold, of brass, iron, wood, and stone, which see not, nor hear not, nor know. And the God in whose hand thy breath is, and whose are all thy ways, hast thou not glorified. I want you to take note of something here. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was his grandfather. And Belshazzar knew of this conversion story. He knew what pride did. He knew the God of heaven. Although sin is not imputed upon the children in that sense, yet when we refuse to learn of the past mistakes that have been so clear in our parents, we have no excuse. Especially when the testimony and the conversion story has been that clear. What I'm gathering from this is that Belshazzar had no excuse. And we in today's age, we have all the prophets and past mistakes of the whole generations before us. But yet we still can't learn. We're not that much different from Belshazzar when you come to think of it. But it says that Belshazzar lifted up himself against the Lord of heaven. Really? Representing those that will go against God in the last days. But how do they go against God? How do they lift themselves up? They drink wine with holy vessels of God. Mixing of holy with unholy. How are they going to lift themselves up at the end of the day? Usurping the commandment of God with traditions of men. That was what happened. Now, the three angels' message will come clear. Let's read verses 24 to 28. Then was the part of the hand sent from him, and this writing was written. And this is a writing that was written, Mene, Mene, Tekel, Ufasin. This is the interpretation of the thing. Mene, God, hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. Peres, thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. There were three lines or three words that he gave that he interpreted. Mene, Tekel, and Peres. What did Mene mean? God hath numbered thy kingdom and finished it. What's that? Foretelling of judgment to come. God's numbered your kingdom and finished it. That's the first angel's message. For the hour of his judgment is come. Foretelling of judgment. Tekel, thou art weighed in the balances and art found wanting. What's that? The reason of the judgment. You're weighed in the balance and you're found wanting. You're at sin. Babylon has fallen, has fallen. Why? Because she made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of fornication. Exactly what Babylon did in order for it, these words to come out. So Tekel was the reason of judgment, pronouncement of that judgment. And that's exactly the second angel's message. And thirdly, Perez, the execution of the judgment. Thy kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Third angel's message those who receive the mark of the beast or the worship that image. So on and so forth, what? They receive the wrath of God and they have no rest day nor night. In this same way, the kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That's the third angel's message, executive judgment. 
So what we're seeing here is that three angels' message has similarities, not exactly, but what we're seeing is a three angels' message comes across with similar characteristics as the words that were written on the wall. The same judgment. Judgment, our message. And who was the one that gave the message and interpreted? Daniel. So Daniel, portrayed in the last days, should be like us, or we should be like him, sorry. And we should be doing what? Giving the judgment our message. That is the present truth for our time. Nothing else. That is the present truth. The judgment our message. Keep in note also that Daniel is a type of the 144,000. And this is going to become very clear at the end of this chapter. Because you see, chapter 5, although we see the fall of Babylon, we don't see um, the whole world ending and then Jesus Christ coming. What are we seeing? What come, kingdom comes next? Medo-Persian kingdom. Now, we're going to look at this, and especially the king at that time, his name was Cyrus, and how that relates to our end time. But let's finish the last three verses, and we'll look at that. Then commanded Belshazzar, and they clothed Daniel with scarlet and put a chain of gold about his neck and made a proclamation concerning him that he should be the third ruler in the kingdom. In that night was Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, slain. And Darius the Median took the kingdom, being about threescore and two years old. It says at the end that Darius the Mede was the one that, what, took the kingdom. But really, when you look at it, if you look at between the Medes and the Persians, yes, Darius was the one that conquered it. But Cyrus was the one that was stronger in the end. The Medes were strong at the beginning. The Persians was the one that came out stronger at the end. History tells that, but prophecy will also show that in the future. And we're going to look at that in the future, but keep that in mind. But you see here, it says that Daniel continued into the kingdom of Medo-Persia. He didn't perish with Babylon. In the same way when judgment is falling out upon Babylon, the group of people that don't perish in that world, what group are they? The 144,000, the only group that doesn't see death. So the 144,000 not only give the judgment our message, but they won't see death. They'll continue to the next kingdom, the kingdom of grace, the kingdom of God. So Daniel is a type of the 144,000. And Cyrus is a type of Christ. So when we're seeing the Medo-Persian kingdom come to conquer Babylon, we're seeing a same similar characteristic that's coming out when Jesus Christ comes and conquers comes to destroy the world or reclaim it as his own. Cyrus is a type of Christ. Now I'm going to give you a few texts right at the end to write down. But I just want to cover one more thing. You see, we don't know the exact time of the close of probation. No man knows that. We don't know the day nor the hour, just as we don't know the day or the hour of the second coming. But yet we can know the season. We can know the season or when it's close, the close of probation. We're given this in Matthew 24. I want you to turn with me there. You see, Matthew 24 is a mingling of prophetic events, both for the local literal Israelites during that time, but also for the worldwide end time, for those who are living in the last days. And Jesus mingled both these events together so that the disciples would not be overwhelmed, but also for our benefit for those who live in the future as well. You see, Matthew 24, and we're looking at verse 15. This is a dual application. 
Matthew 24, starting with verse 15, When ye therefore shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house. Verse 18, Neither let them which is in the field return back to take his clothes. What was Jesus speaking about here? In two ways, first he was speaking about that time when Jerusalem would be destroyed. When the Roman armies under the generalship of Titus stood upon Mount Moriah, which the Israelites recalled or counted as holy. The abomination of desolation, Roman armies, stand in the holy place upon Mount Moriah. It says, whoso readeth, let him understand. When you see that, what are you going to do? Get off the rooftop and run into the mountains. When you, when you plow in the field, don't return back to your house to take your cloak. Just run. Leave the city. When you see the abomination of desolation stand in the holy place. Why? Because that happened in AD 66. There was still time of peace after that. But for four years that happened, and then AD 70, the Roman armies came back and desolated Jerusalem. Not one Christian was killed. Not one Christian, do you hear that, was killed. Those that took heed of the prophecy of Jesus Christ back then, when they saw Titus and his Roman army standing Mount Moriah, what did they do? They fled. They left the city. And so in the same way, when we see the abomination that makes desolate stand in the holy place, when we see holy mixed with unholy, church with state, Sunday law usurping the commandment of God, the Sabbath commandment, what do we do? We flee. We know the time of the season, but we don't know the exact date, but we know that when that happens, close of probation soon comes. In the same hour is what Daniel says, chapter 5. So when we see that, we know that season, you see. And I just want to share a quote with you, taken from 5th volume of the Testimonies, 5T, page 451. And then we're going to come back to chapter 5. 5T, page 451. By the decree enforcing the institution of the papacy in violation of the law of God, our nation will be disconnected will disconnect herself fully from righteousness by that decree enforcing the institution of the papacy. When Protestantism shall stretch her hand across a gulf to grasp the hand of the Roman power, when she shall reach over the abyss to clasp hands with spiritualism, when under the influence of this threefold union, we read this earlier, our country shall repudiate every principle of its constitution as a Protestant and Republican government. So whatever the United States was set upon in terms of religious freedom, it will be repudiated. It will be gone. And shall make provision for the propagation of papal falsehoods and delusions. Then we may know that the time has come for the marvelous working of Satan and that the end is near. When we see Protestantism reaching over the gulf to clasp hands with Catholicism, and all the laws of the United States, especially religious liberty, under which republicanism and Protestantism were set up. When we see that it's all gone, then we know that the end is near. As the approach of the Roman armies was assigned to the disciples of the impending destruction of Jerusalem, Matthew 24, so may this apostasy be assigned to us that the limit of God's forbearance is reached, that the measure of our nation's iniquity is full, and that the angel of mercy is about to take her flight 
never to return. The people of God will then be plunged into those scenes of affliction and distress which prophets have described as a time of Jacob's trouble. Only then will Jacob's trouble come. The cries of the faithful, persecuted ones ascend to heaven. So that describes that time. No man knows the exact date or hour, but we know when the time is close. When Protestantism, Protestantism reaches over the gulf to reach or clasp hands with the papacy, Catholicism. So this, when we look at Daniel chapter 5, we see all the prophetic meanings behind it. And you probably see more out of this story than you did before because we look at this, we see, yeah, just the fall of Babylon, maybe just second angel's message and that's it. But we're seeing other lining up of events that are going to take place at the end of time. Now, <clears throat> when the kings dry up the river Euphrates, spiritually speaking, what does the water represent? People, multitudes, nations, tongues. Revelation 17, 15, right? But what we're seeing here is that the inhabitants of Babylon, when they realize that they're lost for eternity, what do they do? The ministers of Babylon that are responsible, literally torn to pieces. They're cut to shreds. And we see this in Revelation 16, 12. Let's go there. I just want to show you this. We see the drying up of the river Euphrates, Revelation 16, 12. And it says here, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. An exact application of what we're seeing in Daniel 5. This is one of the plagues. But then it says in Revelation 17, 12, I want you to note this. Revelation chapter 17, and we're first looking at verse 12. The ten horns which thou sawest are what? Ten kings. So we're seeing that ten horns represent king kingdoms. But then we look at verse 16. And the ten horns which are what? The ten kings. Which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. You see, when the kings and when the people of the earth realize that they're destroyed. What happens? The waters or the water that supports Babylon, the, the hall that sitteth upon many waters, that support base is dried up. Her support is gone. Why? Because they turn around and kill her. This is exactly what we're going to see at the end of time. The support base or the waters upon which the horse sitteth, those people will turn around at the end of time and kill her. So we're seeing the support of Babylon being dried up through the river Euphrates. And that's how Babylon, in essence, will be destroyed at the end of time. First by the kings of the east, but by also her support base being dried up. The kings upon which she sat on. Who are the kings of the east? Cyrus. Cyrus, yes, Darius was there, but the Bible points out Cyrus over and over again. And Cyrus is a type of Christ. I want to give you seven points on this, okay? That how we know that Cyrus is a type of Christ. Isaiah, just write these down. Uh, we're not going to turn to the texts. Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1 tells us that Cyrus was anointed. And anointed means what? Messiah. So Cyrus was anointed by God. 
Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 1. In John 1 41, we see that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. John chapter 1 and verse 41. That's point one. Cyrus was anointed, which means a Messiah. John 1 41, Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah. Number two, Cyrus comes from a far country. Isaiah 46 verse 11. Isaiah 46 verse 11, Cyrus comes from a far country. Luke 19, 12, Christ comes from a far country. Luke 19, 12. Point number three, Isaiah 41 and verse 2. Isaiah 41 verse 2. Cyrus came from the east. Isaiah 41 and verse 2. Cyrus came from the east. Matthew 24 verse 27. As lightning comes out from the east and shines up even unto the west. Describing the coming of the Lord. Christ also comes from the east. And of course Revelation 19 verse 16 says he's a king. So Cyrus was a king. They came from the east, kings of the east. Christ also comes as a king, also from the east. Matthew 24, verse 27, and Revelation 19, 16. You put those two together. Jesus Christ is a king and he comes from the east. Point number three. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Isaiah 44, verse 28. Cyrus is the shepherd. He is the shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 11. Jesus is the good shepherd. John chapter 10 and verse 11. Point number 5. Isaiah 41 and verse 2. Isaiah 41 and verse 2. We read this earlier. We looked at this earlier. But it says here that Cyrus is known as the righteous. And of course, we have many texts of Jesus Christ the righteous, but I'm just going to give you one. First John chapter 2 and verse 1. First John chapter 2 and verse 1. Jesus Christ is righteous. Point number 6. Isaiah 44 and verses 27 and 28. Isaiah 44 verses 27 and 28. God chooses Cyrus to divert the river Euphrates to change the flow of the river. Isaiah 44, verses 27 and 28. Now we read Revelation 16, 12, of course, the kings of the east, whom we know as Jesus Christ, kings of the east, divert also the river or dry up the river. Revelation 16, 12. And lastly, Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 13. Cyrus is the one that has been ordained to let the people of God go free. Isaiah 45 verse 13. Cyrus is to let the people of God go free. And we see in Luke 4, 18, when Jesus pronounces the prophecy, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to set those that are in bondage, to free the captive. So Jesus also is to set us free from bondage. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Luke 4, 18. 
So we see through and through that Cyrus was ordained by God and he is a type of Christ that was to represent the second coming of Jesus Christ as how he would come to destroy Babylon. So the destruction of Babylon not only shows us how Babylon would fall, Revelation chapter, uh, third angel, second angel's message, Revelation 14, but we're also seeing all the way up to the second coming. And so this prophecy has great application to our time. We're seeing a lot of history come and repeat itself. And of course, we're going to see that in Daniel chapter 6 again, as we saw in Daniel chapter 3. But you're beginning to see the importance of stories. Typically, we've studied just those ones with the statue, the beast, and all that. But we never study these stories. But yet, they're so important to our understanding. And maybe it do us well to focus more on the stories than the actual prophecies. Because really, we're just given a succession of time in the prophecies. But what we really need is to understand how it's going to be fulfilled. The big picture over this, when you see what? Wine mingling in with the holy. We're seeing traditions of man usurping up the commandments of God. We're seeing Sunday sacredness come in. Then we realize that what? Probation is soon to close. Very soon after that. So we must, if anything, ever be watchful about what's happening in the political and religious arena. But ultimately, everybody will find out. Ultimately, the whole world will know. But we need to be on the forefront so we can warn others about the impending doom. So this is Daniel chapter 5. hope I haven't gone too fast and given you too much information. But I think we're beginning to see that this story goes beyond just a literal, oh, the fall of Babylon. With that, let's kneel and we'll bow our heads forward to prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for giving us this chapter in the book of Daniel to show us the time that is soon to come upon us. And Father, you've given us so many signs for us to watch upon. But yet, Lord, nothing will be to any benefit to us if we are not ready in our hearts. So Lord, as Daniel was ready in his heart, as he purposed in Daniel chapter 1, help us today to purpose in our hearts that we might be ready, not just for the sake of our own salvation, but Lord, that we may help others to come to know Thee and be able to stand while others are trembling and fearful for the judgments that are soon to come. So Father, please bless us and keep us in Thy arms is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.